Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction, the show that explains physics one chat up line at a time. Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction. Despite all attempts to shut us down, we are defiantly still the show that explains physics one chat up line at a time, and today we have a special interview episode. This is the first... This is the second part of my interview with Dr. Rafael Alves Batista. He gained his PhD in physics from the University of Hamburg, and then he came to the UK to study for a postdoctoral position in Oxford, which is where we met because he supervised my master's project. And I can still remember having lots of discussions about physics and politics with him in the uh, time when we were doing that work together. So Rafa studies cosmic rays. He studies cosmology, fine-tuning, cosmomagnetic fields, dark matter, astrobiology, anything astrophysics, really. In the second part of our discussion, we talk about his famous recent paper, The Resilience of Life to Astrophysical Events. This paper was talking about what it might take to wipe out all life on Earth. So it's very similar to our recent Teotihuacan special, It Came From Outer Space, which I know is one of the most popular episodes we've ever done. In that show I describe what might happen if asteroids, supernovae or gamma ray bursts hit the Earth. What Rafa calculated was how likely this actually is to happen. And we also talk about some related things, what happens to life in outer space and what it might mean for life in outer space, and the ways of communicating science to the public. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so um, moving on from the multiverse, I also want to discuss a particular paper that's set in our universe that you wrote that generated a lot of attention. And I remember, actually, listeners to the show will know that uh, Rafa supervised my Enthys thesis. And uh, I remember him and David discussing and refining this paper when I was working in their office last year. So this is the paper that's called The Resilience of Life to Astrophysical Events. And it deals with tardigrades, uh, which are these little water bears. And uh, we're doing a series of shows at the moment about the end of the world. And in our episode, uh, It Came From Outer Space, we talked about the possibilities of gamma ray bursts, supernovae and asteroid strikes. So I think this is especially fun to focus on uh, in light of your paper. So would you like to explain the idea behind the paper and what it was that you found? The idea behind the paper is essentially the following. We are asking ourselves, what would it actually take in order to get rid of all life on Earth, and when I say all life, I mean all life. Mm-hmm. I'm re- I say I'm referring to plants, I'm referring to bacteria, and I'm of, of course referring to humans as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm not interested in humans. Humans as a species, we are very fragile. We can die from climate changes, yeah. uh, poor political choices, uh, <laughs> as we can, <laughs> and these kind of things. Very easy to kill. Yes. 
but we are also very easy to survive because we have our technology. So, mm -hmm. you know, in the future, we might be able to get away in case our planet was doomed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea behind our uh, paper, The Resilience of Life to Astrophysical Events, is the following. We have considered the main kind of events that would sterilize planet Earth, completely get rid of all forms of life. Mm -hmm. First, the first point here, what's life? <laughs> we only know of life on Earth. Therefore, that's what we are going to use as a definition for life. Mm -hmm. So we have taken as an example of the most resilient species of life because our calculation is in order to get rid of everything, all forms of life, we can probably try to kill the most resilient creature on Earth and then we would be killing everything else as well, right? Yeah, absolutely, by default. So we have taken the tardigrades as our uh, benchmark for that. Why mm -hmm. the tardigrades? Uh, tardigrades, they are fairly, uh, very remarkable creatures. They can withstand temperatures as low as minus 272 degrees Celsius. That's about uh, one degree Kelvin. That's very low temperature. Zero Kelvin is as cold as anything can get, so one degree Kelvin is just an astonishingly low temperature. It's actually lower than the background radiation in the universe, isn't it? Yes, the background radiation in the universe is 2.7 Kelvin. Mm -hmm. Tardigrades can survive temperatures of one Kelvin for a few minutes, and they can also withstand temperatures as high as 150 degrees centigrade wow. uh, for a long period of time, for years. They went to space, and they came back alive. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, they can withstand as well very high doses of uh, radiation of the order of 5,000 gray. Uh, gray is a commonly used unit in radiation measurements. And mm -hmm. uh, what you need to know is five grays would probably kill us, both of us. Yes. And they can withstand 6,000, 5,000 grays. Wow. So if you went right up close to a nuclear reactor that that would kill you, but the tardigrades would probably live. They would probably live, yeah. That's fascinating. So they're a really good test subject to see what's the absolute maximum you could sort of pound the Earth with and see what will survive. And these tardigrades, if, if anything's going to survive, they probably will. They probably will. However, there is a caveat here, which is when we say tardigrades, we're referring to more than a thousand species. Yes, some of okay. these species, they live on Earth. Some of them are water-dwelling. Mm-hmm. And there are many differences in terms of these resilience across uh, the tardigrade, across uh, all the tardigrade species. Uh, therefore, it's not very fair to say that all tardigrades would survive all the events that I'm going to talk about later. No, no, it's not fair to say that. Some species would survive, some would die. And of course, there are many other caveats that uh, I'll mention later. But tardigrades are remarkable because they are very, very resilient in terms of temperature in terms of radiation and also uh, in terms of pressure. However, because they are living beings, if they don't have water, they will die. If they don't have stuff to eat, they will probably die after a long time because they can resist, uh, they can live without food for decades. Wow, okay. So they could survive a big shock, but if they don't have water, then eventually they will die. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're since we're talking about sterilizing a whole planet so that no life can possibly survive there, you would need to talk about things that get rid of their water and food supply as well. Yes. Okay. Let's start. Uh, we have considered the main astrophysical events that could uh, kill all life on Earth. We have considered supernovae, which are 
explosions uh, of dying stars uh, that explode. Mm -hmm. So it's the end of the life of a star. We have considered gamma ray bursts, which are very energetic explosions, much more energetic than supernovae. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't actually know a lot about gamma ray bursts, but we know that it emits much more radiation than a supernova. And this radiation, it's beamed uh, within a few degrees, a couple of degrees. Mm -hmm. So they're like death rays from outer space in some sense. It's some of the most powerful astrophysical events that occur, and we don't quite know what they what causes them yet, but they are beaming an awful lot of energy to an awfully small zone of outer space. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third one, of course, it's the most familiar one, which is the collision with an object in the solar system. I would say generically from here on, I'll say asteroids, but it, of course, it uh, also encompasses... Uh, comets or dwarf planets uh, such as Pluto and uh, any kind of rock in the solar system that might collide with Earth. Yeah, an angry moon. An angry moon, yeah. <laughs> Perfect description. Okay, we have considered these three kinds of events. Let's start uh, with the supernova. So we have developed a model for the density of stars in our galaxy. This model essentially reflects the fact that as you get closer to the center of the Milky Way, there are more stars, and therefore the probability of having a supernova closer to the center of the Milky Way, it's much larger than the probability of having a supernova very far from the center of the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. That's our model. We have modeled the galaxy, each position in the galaxy, uh, as a function of its distance to the, uh, to the galactic center, and we have calculated what's the typical rate that supernova uh, supernova occur in those regions mm -hmm. uh, in the particular place of the solar system we find that there are not that many supernova uh, close to the solar system uh, in terms of uh, the rate of supernova in this region the probability the rate of supernova close to the solar system it's about it's 10 to the minus 9 per giga year you're saying that the rate of supernovae in our part of the galaxy, because it's uh, on this sort of outer edge of the Milky Way, is one in a billion every billion years. Exactly. Okay. The second thing to consider here is what's the closest star to Earth? So the closest star to Earth after the Sun, it's uh, Proxima Centauri, mm -hmm. which is about four light years away, 3.8 light years away. Yeah. And... Uh, it turns out that in order to have the amount of radiation that we need to kill all life on Earth, the supernova would have to be located at 0.01 light years. And the closest star after the sun, it's four light years. We are talking about 100, factor 100. So I see. So supernova could never do it because there's, no, there's not even a star that could go supernova near enough to do it. Only, I guess, the sun going supernova could really do it. Yes. And as a matter of fact, the closest star to Earth that can become a supernova, uh, it's about 120 light years away. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's a factor that's very far from Earth compared to the 0 0.01 light years that we would need. Uh, in principle. Yeah, I guess it's 10,000 times too far away, isn't it, to, for supernovae to destroy life on Earth? Okay, so that's good. We should be happy that we're safe from supernovae, at least until our own sun explodes, but let's not think about that just yet. So how is it that you've worked out this amount of radiation that is enough to kill all life on Earth? What sort of parameters do you use to figure that out? Okay, so in order to kill all life on Earth, in particular, 
we consider the tardigrades. If we want to kill all life, we have to kill the tardigrades. Yes. We thought, hmm, how can we kill them? Because some of the tardigrades, they live underwater. Radiation can't really kill them because they live underwater. Mm-hmm. So and the sea absorbs it. The sea absorbs the radiation, yeah. So if they are deep down uh, in the ocean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we have 10,000 more radiation because it's attenuated by the ocean. So we've got to get rid of the ocean. Yes, uh, we ha- we got to get rid of the ocean in order to kill with radiation. Mm-hmm. But in order to get rid of the ocean, we need to increase the temperature. Mm-hmm. Essentially, our work translates into calculating how much energy would different astrophysical events transfer to Earth. And if we use up all this energy to boil the oceans, which is a very, very, very unlikely event, yeah. then what would happen? Okay. So our calculation is essentially boiling the oceans. Mm-hmm. And that will kill the tardigrades too, hopefully. That will kill the tardigrades first because it will increase the temperature of everything. Mm-hmm. And second, because it will uh, also allow for radiation to reach them. Mm-hmm. And they have no water. And they have no water, of course. And they are, as living creatures, they need water. Uh, going back now to the ways of sterilizing the planet. Gamma ray bursts. Gamma ray bursts are very similar to supernovae, but... Uh, in terms of how do, how we calculate it. So we essentially calculate the amount of stars in the neighborhood of the solar system. Uh, what's the typical rate at which uh, uh, we see a gamma ray burst? And the rate of gamma ray bursts, it's very low. You don't see a lot of gamma ray bursts in the galaxy. However, we do know that the gamma ray bursts are very energetic. So if we have a gamma ray burst at uh, 40 light years, that would be a threat for us. We don't know what gamma ray bursts are, but we know what they are not. Okay. And they are not common stars. Mm. So the sun is very likely not becoming a gamma ray burst. Mm-hmm. Alpha, uh, Proxima Centauri, the closest star to us after the sun, it's very likely not becoming a gamma ray burst. Mm-hmm. And it's very unlikely that all the stars that can't go supernova will become a gamma ray burst. It's got to be something big. It's got to be something energetic. Right. And the third one, Finally, uh, it's asteroids and comets and rocks in the solar system. We have considered all the objects that we know of in the solar system. We know their masses, and we have calculated the amount of kinetic energy that it, these objects have. And if this energy is completely transferred uh, to our planets to boil the oceans, what would happen? So it turns out that there are only 19 objects in the solar system that have enough uh, mass that in case they collide with Earth, they could boil the oceans. Only 19 objects. Does that include the planets as well? That includes objects such as Pluto, yeah. Ah, right, okay. Or some dwarf planets. So there's 19 objects uh, that aren't large planets that have potentially enough kinetic energy if they hit the Earth to boil the oceans and kill the tardigrades. Yes, that's right. However, most of these objects, because they are so large, they are in... uh, well-known, closed, stable orbits around the sun. Therefore, it's very unlikely that within the lifetime of the sun, these objects will uh, collide with Earth. So really, the main threat to life on Earth is just when the sun dies, eventually uh, heats up in a billion years and explodes a few billion years after that. Yes. However, there are also some other things that we have not explicitly mentioned here among these three causes, uh, these three uh, threats. However, they should also be taken into account. For example, Wandering stars. If there is a star just wandering by, passing close to the sun, it might disturb the asteroid belt. It might increase the rate of collisions of asteroids with all the planets in the solar system. 
And something more interesting, it may kick Earth out of its orbit, for example, depending on, on the uh, geometry. So how far this star comes to the planets. So one of the things that we know about astrophysics is that the Milky Way galaxy is heading towards the Andromeda galaxy. And eventually these two galaxies are going to collide and form a new galaxy, which some people call Milkadromeda, I think I've heard it called. But uh, galaxies colliding, it's not like two hard objects colliding, because galaxies are mostly empty space. So in actual fact, most of the stars will just sort of pass straight through the gaps between other stars, and they won't collide. But when this does happen, I guess there's a chance that a wandering star could come close to Earth and disrupt the orbit, that kind of thing. I wouldn't say that the way for this to happen is to have two ga galaxies colliding. No, so there are wandering stars the rest of the time moving throughout the galaxy that could come close to us and maybe disrupt all of the orbits of the objects in the solar system. Exactly. Okay. However, if that happens, there is something very interesting. While there would be no source of heat because Earth would be leaving the sun and Earth would be just wandering around the galaxy for a few billion years, mm -hmm. the amount of energy produced by the planet itself from the core of the planet, so the planet itself can keep uh, the temperature high enough for uh, the tardigrades to survive for billions of years. Wow, and then that's interesting. And then the Earth can get captured by a new star. I see. So there's this scenario then where a, a star comes into the solar system. It disrupts the Earth's orbit and the Earth wanders off for billions of years as a rogue planet. But because of the decay and the heat from internal objects in the Earth, because of the decay of radioactive elements in the Earth that heats up the Earth's surface, it would keep things just hot enough for the tardigrades to survive. And then we actually have a fairly high chance of being recaptured by another star and having a new home? Yes, that, that's right. However, uh, I would say that the main source of energy is just the energy that we have already stored in our, uh, in our core, I see. in the so core of the that, planet. So it's that the Earth will take a very long time to cool down when it's wandering around as a rogue planet? Yes, right, and right. water could just linger on Earth, mm -hmm. um, especially under the surface, and creatures such as tardigrades could live there for billions of years. Mm -hmm. So your paper is, it was very fascinating and I enjoyed reading it a lot and I'm sure everyone else did as well who got to read it. Um, but as well as just having consequences for life on Earth, it answers some interesting astrobiological questions as well. Because one of the big things people are concerned about is the, uh, the Fermi paradox, which we talked about in our episode Fermi and Drake, which you can go back and listen to. And it's essentially... Why aren't we hearing communications from alien life? Why doesn't life exist and why isn't it everywhere and talking to us and so on? And one of the resolutions that people came up for for the Fermi paradox is, well, maybe there are lots of events going on in outer space that are killing life uh, on planets before it gets a chance to communicate with us. So maybe the uh, supernovae and the gamma ray bursts and the asteroid strikes means that civilizations and life don't last that long on planets. But I guess what your research shows is that, at least insofar as our planet might be fairly typical of a planet that hosts life, the actual probabilities of all life being wiped out once it starts might be quite low. Yes, that's right. Uh, we, whereby we, I'm referring to Avi Loeb uh, and Dave Dislon, my colleagues who uh, co-authored this paper with me, mm -hmm. we worked on another paper uh, last year called The Relatively Likelihood for Life as a Function of the Cosmic Time in which we calculate 
assuming everything we know about exoplanets, the amount of uh, the number of planets la uh, orbiting stars within their habitable zones, whereby habitable zone I'm referring to the uh, region, to the belt around a star where we can get liquid water. We have wrote, written this paper uh, last year, and our result is very interesting. So it kind of uh, resonates in, in part with what you just said, because we have calculated, we have asked the following question. Okay, we know that we live here now. Now it's 13.7 uh, billion years after the Big Bang. At which point in the history of the universe, starting from the Big Bang, extrapolating to trillions of years from now, are we more likely to find ourselves living in? That's the question we asked. And our answer is, it turns out that if we do all the maths, using what we know about exoplanets, that might be wrong. What we know about exoplanets may not, our the exoplanets we know might not be typical, for example. Mm -hmm. It turns out that this probability, so the probability of finding life, uh, not life, so the probability of finding planets in the habitable zones of stars, it peaks in the very far future, 10 trillion years from now. Wow. That means that we are, in some sense, relatively premature. So that's really interesting. So what you're saying is that it, the most likely time for life to arise is not now, but sometime in the far future. Yes, so we are premature. Exactly. Wow. So we could be early forms of life, and then in the future there won't be a Fermi paradox because there'll be enough life that they can all communicate with each other. Uh, okay, but then there is a caveat there. Okay. The caveat is the following. Our calculation, it's a relatively likelihood, mm -hmm. meaning that even if we are, we cannot say anything about the Fermi paradox because it's a relatively, uh, it's a relatively calculation, meaning that what we have calculated is that, that, uh, the ratio of planets in the habitable zone that we find today and 10 trillion years from now, it's a million. So there are, we expect to find a million more habitable planets 10 trillion years from now than we find today. We can't, we don't know if there are other civilizations, uh, right now, and, uh, we don't know what's the actual number of, uh, planets in the habitable zones of stars today. Because we don't have this number, we can't actually say, we don't know if, we, you know, we can't communicate with the others because there is just us. I guess there's a couple of caveats to make here. So one is the fact that you've looked at relative likelihoods, which means we don't, we don't actually know the absolute probability of life arising. Because, you know, if we knew that, we'd know how many civilizations there were. And we only know that there's us. So we can't infer that probability. So you know that life, uh, habitable planets are a million times more likely to happen in the far future. But you don't know necessarily what the rate of habitable planets is today, because that's kind of incomplete information that we have. And also, this only deals with the first half of reasons in the Drake equation. So if listeners remember the episode in the Drake equation, you have to work out how many habitable planets there are. But then you also have to work out how likely life is to arise and how likely that life is to become intelligent. And then how likely that life is to want to communicate and for how long it wants to communicate. So we're sort of dealing with the first half. The, uh, the astrophysical constraints on life are dealt with by the paper. And those may become more favorable than they are now in the far future, but we don't quite know what they are today. So um, in terms of astrobiology, I guess we're in a stage at the moment that you might call stage one of astrobiology, which is where, you know, we look at the universe, we try and figure out what planets might be habitable, and we try and figure out um, using this kind of probability calculation, given that all we know is that we exist on this planet, how likely is life to be based on that? And this sort of inference from one data point is, is stage one 
astrobiology. But stage two would surely be if we detected the signatures of life uh, elsewhere in the universe. So in terms of detecting signatures of life from elsewhere in the universe, how, how do astronomers currently look for this? And what do you think is perhaps the most likely way we might find it? In That's a very good question. Uh, what astronomers usually do, there are two ways. So there are some people. First, we have to define which kind of life are we looking for, because there are some people actively working on the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. Uh, so mm -hmm. the SET project. Mm -hmm. The main way to look for that would be, of course, if we just found life on Mars, for example. Yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? If we found yes. life on Mars, that would probably mean that life came from somewhere else and seeded our whole solar system, I think, or, or that it's just far more likely to arise on planets than we thought. Yes, that's right. Uh, the main way that people usually look for life on other planets is uh, through what we call spectroscopy. Spectroscopy mm -hmm. essentially tells you that uh, essentially you look at atmospheres of other planets and you look for the signatures of molecules that are life tracers. So molecules that we know are associated to life. Mm -hmm. And if we see a lot of these molecules, we say, okay, that planet has a very high uh, probability, not very high, but there is a probability that planet, that planet can host uh, any kind of life because we see some organic life uh, biomolecule, uh, we see some organic molecules that could be life tracers. We are not at that stage, not yet, but we will be in a couple of years. There is the upcoming James Webb Telescope. Yes, that's right. The James Webb Space Telescope, it's going to be a revolutionary for astrobiology because it will be the first telescope to allow us to do a spectroscopy of exoplanetary atmospheres. Uh, not that we can't do it now, we just haven't found any planets that aren't just a single pixel in our screen. We cannot see the atmosphere. They are just a point uh, at the moment. However, there might be some, we don't know. But once we can That's... tell what's in the atmosphere, we can start looking for things like oxygen and carbon dioxide that might be signatures of life. And could we even look for complex things like proteins and amino acids or something like that? Or, or is that beyond yes, the realm? Yes, definitely. Okay. No, de definitely. We can look for that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that we are quite there yet uh, to look for very complex molecules at the moment because no, no, no. I'm not sure our equipment, our instruments at the moment, they have enough resolution for that kind of study. Mm -hmm. But we are talking about maybe a decade or so. It's very exciting times. I think it's just one of those things where even if we discovered just evidence that there was a, a, a simple bacteria out there, it makes such a huge difference to those parameters in the in the Drake equation and inferring what might have happened to life. And the philosophical implications of that are just mind-blowing. So even if we do find evidence that there's life just in one other planet of the Earth and it's not that developed, it's still a huge difference. You know, the gap between one and two is far, far, far greater than the gap between 20 and 21. Yeah, and there is also something very interesting that I haven't mentioned yet. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, there was a planet found last year or maybe two years ago around... Uh, Alpha Centauri. Yes, exactly. Around uh, This planet is called Proxima B because it orbits uh, Proxima Centauri, one right, of right. the stars of the triple system. There is a mission, privately funded. Uh, there is a project. It's called the Breakthrough Initiative Starshot Project. The Starshot mm -hmm. Project 
has the goal of sending, you know, standard iPhone-like CCD cameras. So essentially, like a a camera, just the the camera mm-hmm. from your from phones, uh, a bunch of those to this star. And that would be the first instrument we've ever sent that's been uh, towards directed towards another star. Yes, and uh, this instrument, the idea is to use laser grids, so there will be just laser pointing to sails, and these sails will just be used some kind of parachute that will work as sails for these uh, for these cameras, and we'll send a thousand of them because maybe nine hundred of them will just get will just hit lost. dust or other things, or and they will get yeah. lost. It's a long but mission. It's a long mission, but. Preliminary calculations suggest that we can get up to 20% of the speed of light with this kind of setup. Because wow. this star is only four light years away, if we send, if this mission starts maybe, let's say, in 2020, it will get there by 2040. So within our lifetimes, we'll have visited another star. Yes, exactly. And it will send the pictures back. Yes, and that would only take four years because they can send those using uh, light electromagnetic radiation. I that's right. So and maybe then, by 2045, we'd actually have results from this uh, nearby planet. Yes, if this mission is actually if it is actually ever done, because yeah, this is fun. privately funded, and it has many other... There are many other things that one should think about, because these lasers, in order to propel the sails, they have to be very high-powered. But, you know, what would happen if Kim Jong-un decided to, put, uh, to launch a satellite with a mirror? Right, so you could launch a simple satellite with a mirror that would reflect these lasers back to Earth, and that would be like a death ray. Yeah, that's a weapon, yeah. So there are many other implications. (laughs) I see. So the main issue then, I suppose, is getting these small detectors up to 20% the speed of light, because, I mean, we've launched things that are aimed to go long distances, like the Voyager space probe, but they're not going anywhere near fast enough to give us a return on a sort of decent timescale. I suppose in some ways we're limited by the length of a human life. Like people aren't really going to necessarily want to fund a project that won't give results until after they die, you know. So 20, 30 years is the kind of time horizon that we can imagine people just about being interested in launching this sort of experiment on. But uh, this planet that's around Proxima Centauri, um, it, it's considered likely that it has an atmosphere. Is that right? Um it's very controversial. Why you okay. don't? I prefer not to say anything. I'm not sure. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. We don't have enough information. Yet. But yeah. um, perhaps when they launch the James Webb Space Telescope, we might be able to get a better look at it. Is that a fair thing? To Definitely. Say? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So in two years, we'll be able. Two or three years, we'll probably be able to look at this planet and see if there are life uh, tracers, um, uh, biomarkers. Uh, yeah. Yes. So if there's some sort of evidence that there may be life there. And then if we did find that, obviously it would provide a lot more impetus for this Starshot project. That's really interesting. I'd heard of the planet, but I didn't know there was an actual uh, attempt in the works or in the planning stage to actually go and visit something like that. And of course, the implications for the nearest habitable planet outside of our solar system having life is just ridiculous. You think, well, if that has life, it must it seems likely that it's almost everywhere. Because, you know, if there's only two planets in a million that have life and they happen to be next door to each other, eh, it seems like a coincidence, doesn't it? Um, just This is just a sort of question on your personal opinions. So when it comes to this Fermi paradox and resolving that, I think there's two approaches that are perhaps quite popular amongst people's beliefs. And one is that actually planets that are habitable and uh, can survive and can support life 
are rare. It's called the rare earth hypothesis. And they say that, well, actually, for life to evolve at all, you need a lot of very specific things to fall into place. So not only just the Goldilocks zone being in the right distance from your star to have the right temperature, but you also need complex molecules and you might also need a magnetic field to protect you and all sorts of things like this. And maybe in your solar system, you need a planet that can stop regular asteroid impacts. So it may be that uh, planets that can support civilization are rare. That's that's the rare Earth hypothesis. And then the other idea is that actually the limiting factor is the length of civilizations and how long they communicate for. So the uh, the radio silence from the world around us, if it continues for much longer, um, it could indicate that civilizations either don't communicate or the phase where they communicate is quite short. And that would imply that either they destroy themselves or they they evolve beyond wanting to communicate, something like that. So where do you think you would fall on this spectrum, or do you prefer not to say? Okay, so in my personal opinion, I wouldn't say that we are the only ones, of course. I think there it's very likely that there are other forms of life out there, and it's probable that there is some kind of intelligent life. The thing is that they might be extinct by now. So I'm not sure that, so as one of the explanations you just said, I'm not sure all intelligent forms of life live long enough. Sometimes their their whole star dies, or sometimes there is like a climate problems on the planet and other kinds of things, and they die. So the fact that we don't observe them doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that sometime that it's possible that we are the only lucky ones that have evolved technologically to send signals out to space expecting to, to get an answer. Maybe they don't have enough time to evolve. And I think people also need to remember when they think about why we haven't seen these signals is actually, well, you have to sync things up in time as well in space. And we've only been observing these signals for not a very long amount of time, really. I mean, we only really discovered radio around the sort of 1800s and so on. So it's a it's a short time in astrophysical terms to conclusively say, oh, there's nothing out there that we could ever observe. Yes, and maybe they are not... That's more of a philosophical statement. Maybe they don't care. They are just living their lives, not caring about other creatures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's one of the things we can't know until uh, until we answer this question. It's just, I think it must be such a fascinating field of research to be in, because you know that any day there could be a sort of black swan event, a single result that tells you, actually, this is completely different to how I previously thought it was. And even though it's very unlikely that we see something like that, it would only take one sort of conclusive result to completely revolutionize how we think about it. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I'd like to finish off with a couple of classic interview questions. So I hope you don't roll your eyes too much. Um, the first one is, what are you working on at the moment? The projects I'm working on right now in the field of uh, kind of related to fine tuning ish and uh, also intersects with astrobiology. I would say that one of the most interesting ones that I've been working on right now, it's the why now problem. So there is this problem that people have posed in the past, which is why are we living at a time in the history of the universe where the amount of dark energy and dark matter are roughly the same? They are actually apart by a factor of three or so, but it doesn't matter. For cosmological purposes, they are the same order of magnitude. Yeah, we normally deal in factors of 10 and 102, you know, 10 to the 20 and all this kind of things. So the fact that dark matter and dark energy are fairly similar is an interesting uh, cosmological phenomenon. And that led to uh, one, there is an anthropic 
solution to this problem that was given by the uh, Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg. Ah, yes, which... he wrote the first three minutes. Yes, that's right. That's the, that the one. Yes, yeah, so this is a book that uh, just basically goes through the cosmology of the universe um, from as much as we possibly know about the first three minutes. And I urge you to pick it up if you can. It's brilliant. So uh, Weinberg's argument is the f uh, it's roughly the following. He addresses this why now question by using anthropic arguments. If we weren't living at this time, he just uses all the information that we know about uh, how long does it take for planets to form? What's the evolution of the universe? So how fast, how quick galaxies form and these kind of things. And he combines, summarizing, just, uh, just a quick idea to give you a mm -hmm. quick idea. He combines all these ideas, uh, all this information about how stars form, how fast, how quick galaxies form, how fast the universe evolves. And he says that anthropically, the why now question can be answered by the anthropic argument. So, if things were different, so we can only ask this question because we are living at this time. So this is kind of a special time window in the history of the universe because too early in the universe, there were lots of stuff colliding. The universe was too hot mm -hmm. and uh, galaxy, galaxy collision, these kind of things. Far in the future, the universe will be, uh, will be different and, you know, the rate of formation of galaxies will change, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we should explain that as the universe evolves and expands, the densities of the different quantities in the universe, they evolve differently. So broadly speaking, the dark energy density remains constant. That's right. Yes. And then the energy in dark matter and visible matter, that goes down by a factor that is the size of the universe cubed. So it's like if you imagine there's a certain amount of stuff in a cube and the cube is expanding, then the amount of the volume that's taken up by matter and dark matter will be going down as that expands by a factor and then for radiation it's a factor to the power of four so in the far future i guess the densities of things that are occupied by visible matter and dark matter and so on these will decrease massively because the universe will continue to exp but the dark energy one will remain constant because it's uh, as well as einstein said it's like a cosmological constant so weinberg's argument is that we actually need the density of dark energy to be similar of that to, to be similar to that of dark matter for stars and therefore life to exist? Yes, that's right. That's Weinberg's argument. And uh, we are working on a generalization of one of the papers I've mentioned earlier, which is the relatively likelihood for life as a function of cosmic time. I see. So if we change the cosmological constant, how likely it is for us to find planets in habitable zones of stars? Wow. Do we have enough time to form life? In this context, so it's kind of combining an anthropic fine-tuning argument, uh, Weinberg style, with the other work that we have done before. So that's one of the things we are working on. That sounds like an amazing project. It would be really interesting to see if the uh, you can point to the relative strength of dark energy in the universe as another factor that's uh, sort of left the uh, life in the universe likelier than it could otherwise be. It's, um, yes. Again, it just seems like there's so many aspects to this fine-tuning problem that uh, it's um, going to be very difficult to construct these probability distributions, but it's a really interesting question. Yes, it has been a lot of work. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And um, yes, so moving on to physics more broadly, I guess in this show, I really want to communicate physics, not just to fellow physicists, but to everyone. And I know you've had quite a lot of experience in going on shows like this and uh, talking to people and public engagement events and so on. 
So um, what do you think are the best ways that we can do this? Because I think it would just be amazing if people spent more time thinking about these uh, wild astrophysical questions that can kind of put your own life into perspective in a lot. Of um, I think it's a thing that everyone should have an awareness of and, a, and an appreciation for. But quite often people, I don't know, they get put off by the terminology or the concepts involved. So what do you think are things that succeed and don't succeed in terms of uh, communicating? I particularly like this kind of uh, podcast model because it's first, it's very efficient. For me, it's the most efficient way to keep myself informed and learn new things. So recently, I have been very keen on learning philosophy, and I have been listening to many uh, podcasts on philosophy. And uh, when I find a podcast that it's accessible, that I can, it's not, you know, it's not very simple that I feel that I'm like wasting my time, but that it's accessible so that I can follow all the details. I can just listen to it when I'm walking to work, when I'm in the gym, when I'm in the bus, when I'm in, traveling in the plane, this kind of thing. So I like the podcast model a lot. I think it's very efficient and very useful. And uh, I think in the near future, podcasts will probably increase a lot. Right now, it's kind of more in uh, English-speaking countries because English is the, the frank language of the yeah, world right of now. Yeah, the world, that's right. So it's very big. Uh, so in other countries, like my own, I'm Brazilian. There are very few podcasts of science in Portuguese, and I think that should change. Yeah, I saw one guy who's doing, I'm not sure whether it's podcasts or YouTube videos in, I think it was in Portuguese, and he's from Brazil, and he's been quite successful. So it obviously shows that there, there is just a huge market out there. And I think podcasting in general is going to move more away from where it's been previously, where you have, uh, it's dominated by independent people who are making shows about things like true crime and stuff like that. And maybe it will go more towards a corporatized model. But you're right, it is, it's a great model because you can pick and choose and have on-demand access to information presented in a lot of different ways in a way that I think when you're talking about physical events, you know, if you want to go to a physical engagement event, I think in some ways the audience is a bit self-selecting because you actually have to commit quite a lot. You know, you've got to say, okay, I'm going to this museum in this particular evening to see this particular event and uh, in some ways maybe you're not getting through to the same range of people that you can with a podcast yes that's right and uh i also think that there is still place for the popular science books yeah but there are too many of them mm -hmm. and they are starting to lose their quality some mm -hmm. of them are still very good for example uh, i think a very accessible book that i've read recently uh i strongly recommend it for the general public it's the one by uh Carlo Rovelli, the Italian physicist. It's Is called uh, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. Yes, exactly. I've got it that's, in my room somewhere. <laughs> that's very accessible. So I know you have a physics background. So mm -hmm. for you that might be uh, too simple, but for you know, for people who work on uh, marketing on uh, or you know, for on corporations on things that are not related to physics, I think that's a very accessible and a great read. Uh, no, I thought it was well written, very poetic language as well. Yes, that's right. There are other kinds of books that they sell themselves, like the ones by uh, Stephen Hawking, which are actually very good uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of teaching the basic concepts. However, I think uh, this is my personal problem with Stephen Hawking books: is that he doesn't draw the line of what he thinks is true and what is actually well established. 
Yes, that's true. I mean, he he started to write books a lot about string theory and M theory and so on. And I think some of it is not as well established um, and, you know, may turn out to be theoretical outlays that uh, that don't come into mainstream physics in the long run. Yes, the same is true for most of these uh, string theory books, because they try to sell themselves like the ones by uh, The Elegant Universe by uh, Brian Greene Green. hmm. or The Fabric of Cosmos also by Brian Greene. Because these books, they have probably the best introduction to general relativity and quantum mechanics that one can find around. Mm -hmm. But when they move towards the late, uh, the last chapters about string theory, they just give this to the public as if it were true. But it's not. It's just a theory. And it's more of a hypothesis at the moment because, you know, there is not even a way to test it in the yeah, case of well, string theory. We're going back to the Popper problem, aren't we, of falsifiable uh, falsifiable predictions. Yeah, like that's this. another hour of discussion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, well, I don't want to lay too much into the string theorists, but um, we'll, we'll probably leave that for <laughs> some other discussion. But it's interesting because they do. You're right. These books are very good at introducing why we need another theory in theoretical physics. But one of the things I do think is um, is perhaps a shame in some ways is the focus of a lot of books on highly theoretical physics and I guess what you might call frontier physics as well. I think there's so many fascinating stories in even going back to sort of Newton and Galileo and the development of physics a long time ago that um, they're told, of course, but I think in some ways you could tell them a thousand times and it would still be interesting. Like how many people are, a lot of people are learning about string theory and so on, but how many people are learning about, say, Sadie Carno and thermodynamics and things along these lines that are established as fact and really affect the world around us in a deep and profound way? And if you ask me, I have never read a book that has like more than a section on this topic. Yeah. yeah. Or more than a paragraph. Yeah. Mm, I think it is very interesting. And that's what I what I kind of hope to do with the show eventually. I mean, a lot of it is just an excuse for me to talk about things that I find interesting, but I hope eventually that if people listen to all the aspects of it, we can go through all of physics so that it's accessible to anyone because you can, you know, you can go and listen to a show about basic mechanics where I'll talk about Newton's laws, or you can go and listen to a show about quantum mechanics or general relativity, special relativity, even, you know, theories that haven't been confirmed yet, that kind of thing. And uh, I don't know. I hope it works out as a project. Yeah. And one thing that I find pretty, uh, pretty nice and it's extremely important in my personal opinion is that uh, every time one tries to engage with the public, mm -hmm. every time one tries to talk about physics with the public, especially in these frontier areas, I think there is a very important thing that most people will meet, most popular science authors, which is the scientific method and actually the philosophy behind physics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Uh, and this is something I have not mentioned when we talked about fine-tuning, but Fine-tuning is just a problem because people have not really, maybe not really deeply thought about things in the sense that if the world, if our physical theories are essentially a description of the world, fine-tunings, we don't care about them. They are just there because our theories are just useful. They arise in our theories, but our theories are just descriptive. They don't reflect yes. the way nature actually works. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have theory, if you say, my theory describes the way nature works, that's something else. That's the philosophy of physics that people are missing the point. So I think it's very important to make it clear for the general public that 
physics, it's in principle descriptive. Uh, sometimes that's what we call the word we use for descriptive, sometimes phenomenological. phenomenological. Mm-hmm. We just try to describe what we see. We don't yes. try to make stronger claims saying that it's the underlying reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of the scientific method. However, I do think it's interesting, regardless of your stance with respect to the laws of nature, if it's mm-hmm. uh, kind of, uh, if it's realistic or not, if it's describing uh, nature or just, uh, or just uh, saying what nature actually is, it's important for the public to know these kind of things uh, and know the, the way science is built. Mm-hmm. How do we get to the results that we have today? Why is it solid? Why our uh, our foundations are so solid? And why we can rely on everything we said before? I think that is so true because, you know, what we are seeing, unfortunately, and I've seen it when I've started engaging in science and so on, is there's a lot of people who reject the whole thing from the ground up. And I think part of the reason why you get that sometimes is because people move straight into what are some of the most fascinating aspects of physics. Like they say, 76% of the universe is dark energy, 24% is dark matter and all this sort of thing. And that's great to say, but actually, if you sort of have that by itself, without understanding the rigorous uh, way in which we've constructed the models behind it, it can seem like quite outlandish claims. And I think people should understand as well what you said is very important. The distinction between a theory and a model that you know, what it is, is it's something that is ideally internally consistent and it explains the things we observe. And that's sort of the realm of physics is building these models that can do that. And as you say, we trust them because they can explain so many of the things that we observe. That's how we know that they're true. I guess it's the idea that it all comes back to that, that sometimes gets a little bit uh, lost when we're constructing grand narratives about the science. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I think that's all we've got time for. So I'd like to say thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So that's the conclusion of my conversation with Dr. Alves Batista. If you're interested and want to find out more, visit his website at www.8raphael.com. That's www.8raphael.com. Or follow him on Twitter at 8raphael. Raphael is spelled R-A-F-E-L. He's appeared on several other shows, and you can find out more about his research publications there as well. Housekeeping. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. You can find the Facebook page, that's Physical Attraction. You can visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com where you can leave reviews, comments, listener questions for the listener questions episode that will come as soon as I have enough listener questions. If you tell just one other person about the show, it's only going to take a few dozen shows. By the law of exponential growth, I will have trillions of listeners. At that point, I'll basically have taken over the world. My wealth, power, and ad revenue will know no bounds, and I'll be able to reward you mightily for being a loyal subject listener. Listener. Until next time, be kind to each other. your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout.
Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.